All right, y'all, welcome to episode 91 as I count down the final 10 episodes before we hit the big 100. And before we get into this episode, which I am so excited to share with you, I just want to encourage you all, if you haven't already, to leave a rating, a review, and share this episode with those that you think may benefit from it. It really helps get the word out and gets this episode recommended to other people. Um, So thank you for those who've been faithfully listening. Welcome to all the new listeners, and I'm really excited to get into today's episode. I love this country. I want us to be uh, the country that we set out and aspire to be. And I know that the only way to get there is for us to come to terms with history. But the truth is, when we think about money, present day, when we think about wealth, our entire economic system in this country was built off extraction and exploitation. All right. Question for you. What is your relationship with money? Yes, money. Do you have a healthy relationship or neutral relationship with money? Or do you fall into maybe some of the common extremes of worrying about money, constantly thinking about it or wanting to acquire more of it? Or maybe the other side of the pendulum where instead you avoid knowing what is happening with your finances, or maybe you just check out altogether your responsibilities around money. And related to money, I'm curious, what is your relationship with giving away your money? Is donating your money a part of a spiritual practice, or is it a tax write-off or an extension of your values? Now, we don't have to look far to find a news story or article critiquing social programs supporting those who don't have a lot of money and lack essential resources, or we also can find messages railing against the many tax loopholes the wealthiest in our country benefit from in our tax laws. There's so much around money, what we have, who doesn't have it, how we get more of it, what we do with it. And we receive constant opportunities to donate our money to charities, to political campaigns, to nonprofits, to do something good or just get a tax write-off. And we learn early how wealth can impact our future trajectory, our well-being, our ability to earn and save it. Now, I love supporting charities and causes that align with my values and beliefs. And if I'm honest, it feels good to help others. And yet, the more I learn about who holds the most resources in our country and how they obtained their immense levels of wealth, along with the philanthropy industry, the more I feel duped and also complicit. Now, I am so grateful for the many I continue to learn from on these matters around money and resources and all that is how the systems that hold all these things. And today's guest is at the top of the list as he connected the dots on how my relationship with money and how the industry of philanthropy needs to change and how I can do so without feeling overwhelmed, but instead energized and aligned 
and even healed. He also helped me see how my desire to help others and feel good in the process has been used to further the exact systems and practices that I see now as the problem. I'm Rebecca Ching, and you're listening to The Unburdened Leader, the show that goes deep with humans who navigate life's challenges and lead in their own ways. Our goal is to learn how they address the burdens they carry, how they learn from them, and become better and more impactful leaders of themselves and others. I grew up in an upper middle class neighborhood, but my family was in the older part of our community. The homes were not the shiny new homes and the planned communities that were popping up seemingly overnight around us. Friends I grew up with just a few houses away would move to these newer areas. And I would hear my parents talk about the new developments with almost this air of judgment, like it was a moral failing my neighbors who moved to the new developments had a little more money than we did. Now, both my parents grew up in modest upbringings, and I would regularly hear judgments towards those with more resources. And looking back, I suspect that judgment was layered with some deep envy and deep frustration that things were so hard for them financially. But this, as a kid, this confused me. And I quickly internalized how many people connected money, a bigger house, and a larger plot of land to your worthiness and status. And that obtaining these markers of status connected to what so many desired, power and influence. And when I started to work on Capitol Hill and the Senate, the attacks on those who depended on social services also came into focus as I waded through the rhetoric attacking these individuals, along with corporations who protected their resources through lobbying for tax write-offs and legal loopholes, the haves and the have-nots. The countless charities, nonprofits, schools, and other organizations fighting for grant money, donations, and financial support from the federal government also integrated into all that noise. Because in my role, overseeing all things scheduling in advance, I would move through the invitations for meeting requests with my former boss from all of these incredible causes, raising money for research and treatments and cures to social causes like support for domestic survivors and kids in need, along with museums and so much more. I would sift through many charity and philanthropic organizations asking my former boss to co-sponsor their respective event. Now, the list of co-sponsors in all of these events was a list of who's who in the DC and often New York City power circles, the haves, helping raise money for those in need, the uh, quote-unquote have-nots. And (laughs) I would feel overwhelmed by the need and what seemed like limited resources. And as I would share my concerns with my fellow DC staffers, I noted how hardened some of my colleagues seemed around everyone lobbying for money. They would talk about certain groups and people with distancing or cynical or othering language that left me often feeling like I needed a shower. And there was this sense that from many of these folks that if you didn't have resources, you weren't working hard enough and you were to blame for your struggles by some. 
Not all, though. My boss was always a champion for those who did not have a voice, but his voice was sadly not the norm, even back in the day when I worked in D.C. And many of those without access to power would hire connected lobbying firms. It's still a practice today. And I connected with some really fun and dynamic people through these different businesses. And some were great. And others fit the stereotype of the lobbyist to a T. And I would watch lobbyist after lobbyist come into the office with representatives from the group they were paid to lobby for walking in behind their dynamic reps. And I got to I got to meet some really cool people like actors and musicians, artists, authors, scientists, activists, and many more over the years. But one meeting still echoes in my heart and mind 25 years later. And I don't recall the lobbyist's name, but I remember their clients. And there were leaders from a handful of individual indigenous tribes seeking appropriations, approval for casinos they wanted to build and how to protect their growing resources from these casinos. I don't remember much that was said in the meeting, but I do remember how I felt when I made eye contact with these dynamic, um, just like incredible presence of these indigenous leaders. And I'm unsure of what they were feeling, but now as a trained trauma therapist, I now know the look I saw in their eyes, which was burdened with trauma, was checked out defeated and numb. And they were lobbying to protect the money they made and their casinos and not to be taxed on land that was already stolen from them. I felt a chill in my soul during that meeting that I only recently connected with how completely problematic and even violent that whole dynamic was, along with all that led to that moment. And I'm saying now unlearning and learning continue to be a huge deconstruction process for me and one we all need to pursue with humility, curiosity, and compassion when we look at money, the systems that hold our money, the things that we value, the things that give us security and who has them and who doesn't have access to them. And today's guest challenges us to see, check this out, Money is medicine that can heal the traumas from colonization and exploitation. Yeah. Now, if you've been around me the last couple of years, you have heard me at least once, probably twice, talk about this book authored by today's guest. It's been such a helpful, generous, and convicting book that gave me an actionable roadmap to understanding the interaction of colonization, capitalism, and philanthropy, and what I can do, like actually do, what we all can do to change our relationship with money and the systems around money. He's also founded this incredible organization that is changing the existing systems that move and control wealth, whether it's through philanthropy, investing, all here in America. Now, Edgar Villanueva is an award-winning author, activist, expert on race, wealth, and philanthropy issues. Edgar is the principal of the Decolonizing Wealth Project and Liberated Capital, along with the author of the best-selling book, the one I brag about a lot, tell people they need to read, Decolonizing Wealth. Edgar advises various organizations, including national and global philanthropies, 
Fortune 500 companies, entertainment, all on social impact strategies to advance racial equity from within and through their investment strategies. Villanueva holds a BSPH and MHA from the Gillings Global School of Public Health at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and he is an enrolled member of the Lumbee Tribe and resides in New York City. Now pay attention to when Edgar shares his metaphor of the colonizer virus, how he explains it, and how he notes we all have it. Listen for when Edgar talks about our understanding of building wealth and how our entire system was built on extraction and exploitation, and how we can take actionable, connecting steps to change how we do wealth and capital in our country. And notice when Edgar talks about the importance of grief as a starting point in decolonizing wealth. Now, please welcome Edgar Villanueva to the Unburdened Leader podcast. Edgar Villanova, welcome to the Unburdened Leader podcast. I am really looking forward to this conversation. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here. I want to start off talking about colonialism and hearing from you, how does colonialism impact how we think about wealth and who controls that wealth? Yeah, great question and a great way to start. Colonization and colonialism are forces that have been at play in our country here in the States and around the world uh, for so long that the dynamics of and the impact of um, these forces are almost unseen or unfilled. Um, we haven't lived or experienced living in a place where these dynamics weren't at play, so they seem really normal to us. Um, also, when we think about colonialism and colonization, they are both concepts and parts of history that we may have learned about in school that um, were uh, against sort of really socializing us to this idea of conquering and, um, and, and actually making heroes out of the people who led these types of violent attacks historically. And so, you know, colonization is sort of glorified and and even countries who have been sort of the, the colonizing powers historically are quite proud of their accomplishments. You know, I, I'm thinking back to a few years ago when I was in Portugal mm. and uh, in, in Lisbon and just kind of walking around and there were just giant monuments, like just so proud that they, you know, came across the seas and, and conquered and, and sort of brought their way of life and being to, to other places. And so when we think about all of the effects historically of colonization, and I want to say it's not just historical, the acts of colonization are still happening all the time all around us. Um, but there are dynamics of colonization that um, are very pervasive and have impacted our ways of being, our ways of seeing the world, how we behave and, as leaders, how we behave within our families. I often call it the colonizer virus because it's almost like this, this infection that has uh, penetrated every aspect of our culture and our institutions. And um, it's about dividing and conquering, commanding and controlling, and above all, exploiting. And how this pertains to wealth is, is uh, pretty, pretty clear in some ways when you think about why countries set out to colonize, why they set out to conquer 
the gist of it is really all about money. It seems like everything comes back down to money, but it was about going into places who had resources and taking those resources and bringing those back to the crown or uh, keeping them for their own ways and exploiting the planet and people at all costs. And uh, the horrible thing about a lot of this is that it was, you know, it, it took place under this this sort of God-given superior kind of complex, right? So kind of muddle faith and those types of ideologies into these types of violent acts, it becomes even more like convoluted and difficult to unpack. But the truth is when we think about money, present day, when we think about wealth, our entire economic system in this country was built off extraction and exploitation. Hmm. You know, when we begin to trace the origins of wealth, um, of a, what, pretty much any wealthy family in this country, a lot of wealthy corporations and institutions, you don't have to look too far to go too far back to find that uh, what contributed to, to that bounty of wealth is uh, enslaved labor and the taking of land uh, from indigenous people and the near genocide of indigenous people. And um, even for folks who are like, well, my family didn't own slaves or whatever, um, those families still benefited from uh, policies and cultures and ways of being that allowed this to happen back then that continue to show up in our policies and economic policies today. And so if your family benefited from the GI Bill, for example, or some type of land grant in the past, these were all policies that were affected with the colonizer virus that contributed to allowing certain groups of people, namely white people in this country, to amass wealth and made it uh, really difficult for people of color to do the same. And even when people of color have played by the rules and have participated in capitalism, uh, as in Tulsa, <laughs> where Black Wall Street, even then wealth has just been destroyed. And so it's been really, really challenging because of the dynamics of colonization and mindsets around that for um, our communities to, to, to build wealth. And so it's all inherently connected from the, the first moment that colonizers touched the, the shores of this country to present day. Yes. <laughs> and I, I, let me follow up was you talked about the colonizing virus and you wrote about that in your book and you you speak about that a lot, too. And I know for a lot of folks, the reflex would be like, well, how do I get it out of me? How do I cure it? I don't want to I don't want to be this bad person. And then, oh, my gosh, if if, if money is bad and everything bad, I, I, you know, how do you keep how do people keep from shutting down and how do people heal this virus that we've all breathed in our whole lives? Yeah, absolutely. I mean. One thing that I'll say is that, you know, I don't think that money is bad if we can talk a little bit more about that. It's, it's, I kind of grew up with that connotation. Uh, I grew up in this particular church that, you know, they used to preach that, you know, the love of money is the root of all evil. And I kind of thought, oh, wow, like money is this bad thing. I shouldn't aspire toward building wealth. And my mother was a domestic worker and I was often uh, in the homes of people who had wealth in our community. And I would think, well, they don't seem like bad people, you know, they just happen to be born into these families or whatever. And so, you know, my own journey around money and sort of the trauma that could be associated with money and especially the connotation that it's a bad thing has been something, a part of my healing journey. And, and a big part of uh, what I write about is understanding that it's not really about the money. It's about us as, as people. Um, who created money, who created this as a tool for 
um, exchange and money represent is like a proxy for for energy and, and what we value. And I do think that money can be, um, you know, sort of deployed in ways that are that are healing and that are um, in service to um, sort of with values of reciprocity for all of us. Um, the way that we begin thinking about healing from these dynamics of colonization, I'm so glad you asked because it is true we're all affected, you know, regardless of your, your background, we have all been socialized to, to a certain way of being. And the way that I even test this on myself, you know, this sounds pretty uh, explicit at some level, but when we watch the evening news and like we see what's going on, even, even in the US that children are being taken away from their homes and put into cages, literally, um, that, you know, thousands of indigenous women are missing and murdered. And like, we are so kind of like uh, numb to these realities that we watch this news and then we get in bed and we sleep pretty soundly, mm-hmm. right? Like that kind of, I'm like, well, I like we're not outraged. We're just so used to it. I think part of it is like, what can I do? Uh, but it just, you know, it, it really speaks to that we, we are all impacted and whether you are descended of uh, folks who may have been uh, colonizers or descendants of folks who have been impacted by by this history, at some level, we have all internalized uh, sort of these dynamics and ways of being and have sort of been complicit at some level in the way that it's been. You know, I think when we uh, begin to think about how we decolonize or how we heal from this, uh, I, I'll use the analogy of, of any sickness or disease, right? The first step is like actually knowing that you, we have it and, and being able to identify how dynamics are operating in our lives and how either our uh, acknowledgement and like being proactive about doing something about it is, is helping or even if we choose not to, how that, that also is, is like a, a form of harm. So the first step is really um, taking, taking uh, note of like what has happened in this country and what our family or our ancestors, that history, how that overlays with the history of this country hmm. and taking ownership or responsibility for that history. Cause it's going to take all of us, you know, really coming together and owning the history that we've inherited and thinking about how we can begin to uh, heal from that and to, to make the changes needed. So even taking that ownership and acknowledging the realities of what has happened in this country is a super hard step. Mm-hmm. It didn't seem so hard five years ago, but it seems even more challenging today uh, when books are being banned from classrooms where we're not allowed to even have these conversations. Uh, um, even even that sort of acknowledgement of history is under attack, which is very, very unsettling for me um, since I, you know, I truly, truly believe that the only way for us to move forward as a country and to have racial healing is to begin to acknowledge what has happened historically. Oh, gosh. Okay. So I have a couple of follow-up questions to that, too. Thank you for that. What are then some, after acknowledgement that we're all breathing in, we all have the colonizing virus, we all have this and owning that and getting curious about just our surroundings and our story and how we've benefited from it. What would be another than next step action, whether it's small business owner, leader in, in a company, a teacher, a therapist, what would be a small next step after that kind of awareness and ownership of what really has happened and is happening? Several things could happen. Uh, what I've seen some examples of 
or institutions, for example, who begin to acknowledge their role historically, and even companies um, around being complicit or even contributing to sort of the racial tensions and trauma that we're experiencing today. Um, I often uh, encourage folks to have some time for grieving, mm. right? When you begin to explore these questions um, in your own life, in your family's life, in a place that you work to acknowledge and understand that, wow, this great organization that I work for has actually like harmed or contributed to harm in the past. We, we, we often will grieve that. And I think that's a really important step before we jump to try to fix things that we have to allow a grieving process to happen. Um, grieving is, is something that uh, people do in different ways and it can manifest in different ways. Um, sometimes it is sort of uh, shows up as in the form of doubt, like, oh no, that, that actually didn't happen. You know, my great, great, great grandfather was a good man. And, you know, Denial. And, and, and it doesn't denial, right? Um, or anger, um, mm -hmm. you know, um, why are we even doing this? Why does this matter? You know, and so it, it begins to show up in different ways. But I, I really think that when we begin to open wounds and bring truth to light, that grieving is so, so important. Mm. If we don't feel bad about some of the things that have happened and a little bit maybe ashamed, then like, I, I don't know what to do with that. Like, I, like if, if you don't have the, the, the humanity to be like, oh my God, this is horrible and I feel terrible about it. Um, only, only that type of, of feeling or emotion that is evoked, I think, uh, can help get, it, get us to the next place. Um, I'm very troubled when I see um, people refusing to 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 just kind of like feel anything about our past. Well, that was so long ago, and I'm like, it was some of these things were so long ago, but there are lots of things that are very recent, and at least the the impacts of these things are still with us. And with my own community, when I think about the legacy of Native American boarding schools in America, with the, the very last boarding school just closing in the late 70s, like I was alive when it closed. <laughs> I'm not that old and I was alive. And, you know, I have, uh, you know, relatives who are, uh, you know, friends whose parents and grandparents were experienced the atrocities of, of Indian boarding schools. And so, to, to dismiss, any of us to dismiss ourselves from like, this was so long ago, has nothing to do with me. Um, you know, and, it, and it's not about blaming, you know, I, I, I'm not on a witch hunt and looking for someone to blame or pin all this on. Um, I think that again, like all of us have to take responsibility. And I, I love this country. I love, uh, I want us to be uh, the country that we um, kind of, you know, set out and aspired to be. And I know that the only way to get there is for us to come to terms with mm. with history. And when we don't grieve it and acknowledge it, it just continues to fester yes. under sort of the, the soul of our country. And we just we just see things getting worse instead of getting better. We just got to rip the Band-Aid off and deal with the pain that kind of comes with that. So... Um, I just wanted to say that because I think that we don't know how to grieve. Um, and uh, even like as individuals, you know, I'm, I'm like, wow, like I see people suffer great loss and they're like back at work the next day. Like, you know, know, and I'm like, I know. Well, okay, take the time. Um, and I think collectively as, you know, I, 
The pandemic was really interesting because I think that was my the first time where I've seen our country sort of experience this collective grieving and coming together. And just, you know, um, I remember, you know, I, I was living in Brooklyn at the time, right next to a hospital and, you know, the, the 7 p.m. coming out and banging on the pots and pans and cheering for our healthcare workers. As horrific as that time was, like, I was like, wow, this was like beautiful to witness that as a country, like we've all been impacted and there's like this collective loss. Like we all knew someone um, that uh, we lost because of, of COVID. And so I think that um, grieving is just something that we have to kind of experience and, and, and learn to, to do in order to move forward um, as a country. And you know, so the same same for like companies and same within families. But once, you know, once that's in place, there's a lot of other things that folks can do. I've seen uh, people actually um, move into the stage of wanting to apologize. You know, some great examples that I've witnessed, uh, the American Library Association a few years back put out a beautiful apology. You know, they've been around for over 100 years. And if, you're, if you've been around that long, there's probably some stuff in your past. And so they absolutely acknowledged how um, they have been complicit in and also had contributed to sort of uh, the racial divide and uh, and apologize for that, kind of came public with it. Uh, the LA Times newspaper I talk about often, same situation, um, over 100 years old as a company, and um, came out and said, you know, as the owner of this, this company, I want to acknowledge this newspaper has um, in fact, uh, perpetuated propaganda about uh, racism and uh, has not been fair in um, our hiring practices and, you know, just a whole laundry list of things and said, you know what, we're sorry. We are genuinely sorry and we're committed to not doing this harm in the future. There's something really beautiful about apologies mm -hmm. um, when you find yourself um, you know, um, a part of an institution or a business. And, you know, sometimes it's maybe you didn't do something horrific, but it's also like, I'm sorry that I didn't do more before now, right? People who have experienced harm, uh, people who come from communities like, like mine, uh, often really just want to be seen and heard. We want to be validated that our experience is, is real. And it's, it's not, it's not our fault, you know? And, what we hear often is like, oh, if, if your people would stop drinking or would work harder, or would do all these things, um, you know, your, your community would be better off. And no one is taking responsibility for what has happened to us, where we were not drunks before this, this, this stuff happened. And, you know, we are literally healing from very recent traumas and abuses to our communities. And so not to cop out of personal responsibility, right? But, um, the power of hearing an apology and an acknowledgement of like, this should not have happened and we are sorry. And with that, the promise of not doing further harm is just really, really important. And I think even in our personal lives and personal relationships, right? We need to say sorry more often, right? <laughs> <laughs> you do somebody wrong, whether it was intentional or un unintentional, um, you know, just apologizing and, and Getting back to some of the good old fashioned ways of, of being in a relationship with each other, I think, are a big part of beginning to 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 heal from a lot of things from the past. No question. And and I I have a couple of reflections. An apology is powerful when it's 
thought out and met with meaningful and helpful action and not one that just makes it go away. So I want to make sure I note that. And then I'm really glad you brought up grief. That makes a lot of sense that, okay, there's the step of ownership, awareness, and then moving into grief. And you're absolutely right, especially here in the States. We grieve terribly. Anyone who works with me know this is something I believe deeply is that while grief is one of the probably the most painful emotions to feel, it also is the most clarifying, like what matters, what doesn't, you know, what's important. All of a sudden, grief brings me with its pain such clarity in my life, what matters, who matters, my values. And so if we don't metabolize our grief, we can't move on to meaningful action and change. So I feel like that is so important. So as individuals, we could do that. And as whatever system we're in, if we don't do that personally, we can't hold space for others who are, you know, navigating different stages of that awareness. So I really appreciate you bringing that up. And then I want to just circle back at the beginning. You mentioned that you don't think money is bad, like money almost neutral. And it was, and so I'm thinking about this, like right now in the recording of this interview, there's a big strike going on um, in LA with the writers and the actors unions. And I read some and check it, but it just stood out and I haven't had a chance to fact check it yet. But basically saying if the top 10 movie studios, uh, um, CEOs gave up 2% of their salaries, all of the financial demands and needs of both unions would be met and then some. And so, yeah, just in light of money isn't bad. And then in something like this, I'd love for you just to comment on that. Absolutely. You know what? What we're witnessing with this situation and the strike with it with writers and actors is a clear example of the colonizer virus at play here. Um, where an industry has uh, built and is hoarding an enormous amount of wealth uh, through exploiting people, right? Uh, through their labor, which is often not fairly uh, compensated and, you know, all the things that writers and actors are are, are lifting up and naming. Um, even down to this whole thing about AI, if you've been following closely, of part of uh, the what the studios are wanting to do is to have the likeness of a part, like basically use your image um, through the use of AI to be in other, you know, uh, productions or, or future episodes or shows. And you're not even getting compensated for that, right? Which is so ridiculous. So it is completely extractive and uh, abusive and all, all the things, I can't think of enough of adjectives to describe it. <laughs> and um, and it's coming from a place of greed and greed, greed and power, which is always what sort of motivates this type of exploitation. And so it's, you know, in this case, it's not about the money per se. Like if money were the bad thing, the actors and writers wouldn't want more of it, right? Um, it is about the hoarding of the resource and the hoarding of, of power. Um, it is about um, redistributing money and paying people more fairly but it is also about um, sort of like dignity and um, rights and all, you know, all other things that folks are asking for that are just sort of like basic human rights um, in this industry. So what I say is that, you know, I'm not anti-wealth. I think that I, we should just have ways for everyone to share in it and have it because mm. we all need money. We all need a certain level of wealth to, to thrive mm. and to take care of our families. And so um, this this strike is not being motivated by by greed for resources from folks, but it is actually um, a pushback on the exploitation and the oppression that they're feeling within this industry. And so, 
So yeah, I'm, um, by saying like money is not bad is is not an endorsement on you know billionaires and billionaires who are hoarding money, but it is uh, you know what we are addressing here is sort of a um, a behavior, a, a scarcity mindset, a c- controlling mechanism, um, exploitation of people on the planet to just hoard those resources. And kind of going back to where we started when I used to say, when I was saying that in, in church, they would say, the love of money is the root of all evil, right? And, and so again, it's not like money is the root of all evil. It's the love of money that is the mm. right? Um, I've had this conversation with a number of, of friends and folks who don't come from wealth, who sometimes carry a little bit of guilt. They begin to like make money. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, it's, it's, it's not a bad thing to want to make money. It's not bad at all. Uh, and um, often, you know, it's the spirit of which, in which you're doing it. And so it is sort of our spirit and our intent and our orientation to to wealth that is really the thing that matters and where we need to like, you know, we need, we need to grow and have a different worldview about resources. Leading is hard. Leading is often controversial. As you navigate staying aligned to your values, your mission, and your boundaries. Navigating the inevitable controversy can challenge your confidence clarity and calm. Now, I know you don't mind making the hard decisions, but sometimes the stakes seem higher and can bring up echoes of old doubts and insecurities during times when you need to feel rock solid on your plan and action. Finding a coach who gets the nuances of your business and leading in our complex polarized world can help you identify the blocks that keep you playing it safe and small. Now, leading today is not a fancy title or fluffy bragging rights. It is brave and bold work to stay the course when the future is so unknown and the doubts and pains from the past keep showing up to shake things up. Internal emotional practices and systemic strategies are needed to keep the protector of cynicism at bay and foster a hope that is both actionable and aligned. When the stakes are high and you don't want to lose focus, when you want to navigate inevitable conflict between your ears and with those you lead, when time is of the essence and you want to make hard decisions with confidence and clarity, then Unburdened Leader Coaching is for you and where you deepen the capacity to tolerate the vulnerability of change, innovation, and doing things differently than you were taught. To start your Unburdened Leader Coaching process with me, go to www.rebeccaching.com and book a free connection call. I can't wait to hear from you. So this is a great way to move into your belief around decolonizing wealth is about embracing indigenous practices. And I'd love for you to talk about what this looks like. And how can non-Native people use these practices in ways that are not appropriating or exploitive? Sure. You know, the word uh, decolonizing or decolonization is uh, kind of seeing that word pop up a lot. And, you know, these days, which, which I appreciate, and I think it's important to understand that from an Indigenous perspective, often when we talk about decolonizing, it is a very, it is very much a political act. 
Mm. It is it is very much about returning land and sovereignty and um, everything that has been lost because of colonization for indigenous people is really about reinstating that. I just want to name that because it is there are folks who really toe that line that it's not decolonizing unless it is, you know, at that level. For me, I, I do take a different approach. I absolutely support the political, you know, view and aspects of decolonization. Um, at the same time, I you know, understand that we are living um, in this, this century where we are super interconnected as people, um, our businesses are intertwined, our families, our lives are very, very much intertwined. And it's hard for me personally to get my mind around undoing 400 years of colonization. Like, what does that look like? I do think there are lots of ways that we can respect and defend tribal sovereignty, which is mm -hmm. really, really important. And that is what we as Native peoples uh, really cling to and hold on as, 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 as a, a thing that we cannot lose and that we are working to regain more and more of um, in the process of decolonizing. But another way to think about decolonizing that is less political, where we all have a role, is to um, kind of, again, understand what has transpired because of hundreds of years of colonization. What is the trauma that has resulted as a result of all of this, all of this, you know, um, exploiting and destroying and hoarding resources? And um, how do we heal from this? And so if colonization has resulted in trauma for all of us, decolonizing for me can be seen as sort of a process of healing from that trauma, Right. And so I kind of use decolonizing in many ways um, in, a, in a very synonymous way um, or fashion as, as healing. And um, so in terms of the role for non-Indigenous people, um, that looks like acknowledging your own trauma that is a result of um, colonization, because again, we all have it. Your trauma may look very different from mine. Um, I've worked and spoken with a lot of White people who know their family's history knows they know that their families own slaves. They know that their families received land grants that was you know land that had been Indian land, and um, they have their own process of healing from that and not letting the burden of that history define who they are or weigh them down forever. Right? We want to be free from all of this, and so decolonizing for them is actually coming to terms with that. And then putting, um, again, the, like you said, um, putting uh, some action behind the apologies. And that is thinking about shifting how they now use their resources and power in the service of healing. And so all of this is grounded in an indigenous worldview um, and perspective and way of being. And I think that that worldview is something that is available for us all to put on, right? It's not saying you become an indigenous person um, no headdresses, please, and all of those kinds of things, right? But <laughs> understanding that a different way of seeing the world and the way that many indigenous people see the world, that is something that we, we share freely. And honestly, myself as an indigenous person, uh, being born into a very colonized world, not being raised in my community, having limited exposure to ceremonies and teachings, this is something that I have had to learn. Um, thankfully, it's kind of in my DNA, so it's a little accelerated learning maybe, but 
we all live and breathe and walk every day in a society that is very contra this way of being. And so it is like an exercise. It is a very conscious decision every day to think differently and to believe differently from the way that we have been, uh, from the ways that have been upheld, not only through our teachings in schools, but in the books we read and media, it is just re constantly reinforced. And so um, indigenous worldview is something that is, um, is available for us all to try on and to try to experience seeing the world in a very different way. Um, I'll share that in a journal that we put out called Money is Medicine, there's a, there's a little chart. And uh, in this chart, we kind of show how there's a Western worldview for uh, kind of seeing and believing different things. And then there's an indigenous worldview. And um, I, I have that chart up here. And it's something that I read often and I think about. Sometimes mm -hmm. I'm like, wow, I'm being really Western right now about about a certain thing. Let me let me lean into trying to have an indigenous worldview um, about a thing. So for example, one of the things uh, here is time. The <laughs> Western worldview construct around time is that it's very linear, linear. It's very, you know, uh, it's very future oriented and it's a framework of months, years, and days um, that really reinforces like this linear structure um, in terms of thinking about time. In the indigenous worldview, time is nonlinear and it's more, uh, it's more cyclical. It's like mm. thinking about the seasons. And um, literally today, we had a conversation with my team around like, okay, we're in summer, looking toward fall. How should we be behaving differently, right? As mm. we're thinking about fall coming, fall is a time of shedding. It's a time of letting go of some stuff. It's a time of like slowing it down and um, beginning to think about moving towards, you know, a more quiet kind of like phase. And I've never really done this in the past, to be honest. Like I am like wide open all the time. Let's go work, 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 deadlines. I'm kind of Western when it comes to time but I'm finding liberation and freedom and joy into like beginning to restructure how I think about my year as it pertains to the seasons. And like, this is a season where we should be following nature and kind of um, making changes in our lives and leading in a different way um, that is going to be more restorative and actually more productive for us at the end of the day. So it's an invitation for everyone to try it on. Mm. Um, I think society would be a lot better if we could lean into some of these indigenous uh, ways of, of being and seeing the world. I, I'm I'm laughing inside because I'm like, fall is a time of shedding. I'm like, I've got two kids in school. It is a time where it's like, okay, the logistics, the coordination, the clothes, the buying. The, I'm like, what would it be like to do that rhythm that we're in? Yeah. But also think of, I'm like, so I'm going to be reflecting on that a little bit. Um, where where can folks access this workbook you just referenced? Is that something we can attach in our show notes or is it something people could go to, something we could link to where they could buy? Sure, absolutely. Our website is decolonizingwealth.com. And if you click on our shop there, you'll see the journal available for sale there. Wonderful, wonderful. I just want to make sure to 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 definitely highlight that. And so I want to shift to talking about the heart of, of your book, Decolonizing Wealth, at least for me, what was most convicting 
was the consequences of colonialism in the world of philanthropy. Um, I have been, I'm deeply still in grief as I reflect over a lifetime of mindset and views on this. And I just would love for you to share how you've noticed the consequences of colonialism, particularly in the world of philanthropy. You know, it's, it's really easy to see the colonizer virus at play in philanthropy. And uh, yeah, it's, it is, it's really sad because this industry in particular, literally the word philanthropy means love of people, right? Mm. And so we should be placing value on people more than, more than anything. And it is a charitable industry. And so if the colonizer virus is at work here, it's definitely at work in a lot of places. So where do you see the, the colonizer virus some sort of aspects? Um, is one, you have to ask yourself who has money in the first place to be a philanthropist, right? And so obviously when we look at folks who start foundations, um, by far it's wealthy white folks and corporations who have the resources to even be considered a philanthropist or to start foundations. And that is a direct product of history and policies, again, that have allowed for accumulated advantages and benefits mm -hmm. for white people. And so then you create, so those are the folks who have the money who create sort of, you know, the, the foundations. And then because they have the money and power, they, they then get to decide um, who gets the money. And they also get to decide if you get the money, what you must do to get their money and the criteria. And mm -hmm. so what we see even there is that currently uh, we know by far when we look at trustees of foundations or the people who sit on boards, more than 90% of foundation boards are, are white people. When we look at the leadership of foundations or the executive suite, more than 90% are white. Because what happens is just human nature. Rich white families start a foundation, they hire somebody they know to run the foundation, right? And so then when you look at who's receiving money, what we know from data um, in all of the, you know, billions of dollars in grants that are flowing from this, this trillion dollar industry, um, less than 10%, about 8% of um, the grants, only about 8% of the grants go to organizations led by people of color who are explicitly working on issues of equity. And so um, essentially what you see happening in the, the, the broader spectrum of philanthropy is basically rich white people giving money to rich white organizations. <laughs> um, and not saying that those organizations aren't doing good work, you know, but does Harvard really need another check right now? You know, they're doing all right over there, you know, and great university, but also the wealth, you know, even in philanthropy is really consolidated. And then what we see also happening is, again, sort of in the how. Uh, imagine being um, the executive director of a nonprofit organization. You know, maybe you imagine being a black woman and you're doing work and you're in, in the black community. So all the extra labor and work that it takes to get funding when you're not on that inside circle, right? Mm -hmm. And imagine finally getting a grant, right? And then you have these folks who are not from your community, who are not um, truly in tune with the needs and what you're trying to do, now telling you how you have to do your work. And so there's this forced assimilation into sort of a, a way of doing work or, or sort of uh, bring it to scale the idea of some billionaire or billionaire. You know, it's, it's like 
modern day colonialism. And it's really interesting in this country that a billionaire can say, I think our public schools should look like such and such, right? Yeah. And then I have the money that I'm now going to fund school districts and nonprofits around the country to implement the, a, a program or an idea based on how I think schools should be. I think that's a little bit of a threat to our democracy. What we have decided, we the people have decided, this is how public schools, you know, things will be decided. Local school boards, parents, students, you know, um, through a publicly funded mechanism, which is problematic in itself. That's a whole other topic, but that is how we have decided that public education is a public good and should be financed and decisions should be made in a very democratic type of way. Um, but yeah, hmm. philanthropists have the power to come in and shape those systems and to bring their way of thinking um, into a place that uh, really diminishes what we the people think should happen. The other thing that a lot of people don't recognize that uh, philanthropy in this country is a very unique um, beast. You don't see this type of mm. philanthropy happening um, in, in other places in the same way, because in the U.S. you get a major tax write-off for starting a foundation or by putting money into a donor-advised fund. I'm not against that per se, um, but what's happening behind that is there's a lot of motivation for wealthy folks to do philanthropy um, but what happens in foundations and what happens in donor advice funds, which is sort of an account you can open at a bank um, where you get a tax um, deduction, there's not a lot of accountability um, around how those resources are actually used. The vast majority of capital that is put into a foundation or put into a donor advice fund never sees the light of day. <laughs> and so, for example, for a private foundation, maybe you're, say you're a foundation that is um, concerned about the environment, right? Um, you, you know, say you have a billion dollars in this foundation or 500 million. Um, the federal government only requires that 5% of those assets are paid out to the community. So most foundations are only making 5% of their assets. They're only moving 5% a year in grants to the community. So what is going on with the 95%? Because they got a tax write-off for all, all of it. The 95% is then invested in public markets, in private business to grow the, that endowment to be bigger and bigger and bigger, right? And so there is more interest in the sector in growing money and having a bigger endowment, which is what you keep, than the actual money that is going out the door to community. And then the other thing that is really unsettling for me is when you look at what these foundations are investing in. And what we know from data is that about 85% of those investments um, in private markets are invested in harmful and extractive industries. So back to my example with the, the Environmental Foundation, um, that foundation may be moving 5% of its money to organizations doing great work to protect the planet um, yet the 95% could be invested in fossil fuels and all types of other harmful and extractive industries that are actually harming the planet. And so the big question is like, what is the net value of philanthropy? If you're doing a little bit of good every year, but you have a lot of money that is actually funding um, against your mission, you're kind of canceling out the good. So there's just right. a lot that goes on in this industry that, uh, 
really make you scratch your head and say, you know, like, what is this really all about? Is this about wealth hoarding and getting tax, you know, savings to build more wealth? Um, or is it really generally about loving people and making a difference in community? And it's attention, I hope, because I know philanthropy does a lot of great work. I've worked in the industry, but these are real truths that we have to name and call out in order to do better. It would be a big disruption. Yeah. The more that after reading your book and digging in to different organizations that I've been a part of or supported over the years, it's really, it's convicting. And so what are some things folks can do practically? Because I know some people want to, you know, they tie their money or they want to be generous. And because there seems to be a little bit of like a white saviorism cycle also contributing to this, where it's just kind of making people feel good while they get their tax write off. And it's not really making a lot of impact. But for folks that really want to make an impact, um, what are some things folks could look uh, look for or look into um, the organizations or the charities that they're interested in supporting? Yeah, you know, one of the best and, and sort of easy things that everyone can do is to ensure that your giving is inclusive, right? Mm. So if you're at the end of the year, you're making your list of all the groups you want to support. I absolutely encourage you to, to you know, give to your university or wherever your heart is calling you to give. But Think about ways you can be inclusive. Ask yourself, is there, uh, is there a black organization on your list? Is there a native organization? How can you uh, expand and share the wealth to ensure that these organizations are also included in your giving plans? Um, knowing that philanthropy is grossly underfunding and underinvesting in these communities, private giving makes a huge difference. In my own nonprofit at Decolonizing Wealth Project, you know, we have a, uh, a donor community called Liberty Capital. That's a place where people can, if, if you don't know an organization uh, to give to, you can take a look at uh, Liberty Capital. It's a place where you can join um, our community. We have 600 members, kind of like a giant giving circle and uh, people give monthly or every year and then they trust uh, us to redistribute those funds to a variety of organizations that are all Black and Native-led. Um, and then, of course, we share all that information back. And, and But it's a place where you can actually also just be a part of a learning community and build relationships and not have to worry so much. And in a way, it's we're pushing back on that white saberism a little bit because we're creating sort of a wedge between... <laughs> between uh, community and the donors by giving the money to community, letting them do their work, uh, but also saying, okay, now you've given, uh, you've been a donor, who else are you? What else can we talk about and work on on our, our healing journey? So um, that's, that's really an important thing to do as we're thinking about giving. You know, I think if you open a donor advice line, which is a way a lot of people are going, not a lot of folks are opening their own foundations these days. That's really dying trend. Uh, because uh, banks like Fidelity and others have these very easy ways to sign up and um, get your tax break. Ensure that your your money and your donor advice fund is actually getting out to organizations. Don't sit on that money. You've already getting, you know, you're getting your tax break already from opening the fund. Um, make a practice to spend that money down every year. Um, mm -hmm. If you're sitting on that money, then people are not getting the help that they could be receiving. And so, um, I'm not anti-donor advice fund by any means. I think uh, it is a vehicle to move money. I have a donor advice fund, uh, but what we need to do is be mindful of uh, making sure those resources are getting out to community organizations. And again, like look for those organizations that are led by people of color who often don't benefit. 
it's also kind of easy to go to the big name, flashy organizations, right? Um, that's fine as a place to start. But look at look right at home where you live. Like mm-hmm. there's probably nonprofits in your backyard. Uh, local nonprofits um, have a more challenging time sometimes raising money than a big, large uh, organization whose name we might all recognize. So uh, think local in your giving as much as possible. And again, we're happy to, to match folks. When you join our community, we have a map of book organizations. We can help you find a group if you're just struggling to, to find one. But those are a few ways you can begin to be more inclusive in your giving. You, you know, you navigate what seems to be this inerrant conflict, and you've touched on that a little bit in this interview, but this inerrant conflict between participating in the quote unquote capital of capitalism and working to bring about greater ingenuity in the economic system. So I'm like, what do you think as you wrestle with this tension? You know, it's funny. It's, it's hard. I think uh, part of my own uh, kind of learning journey and, and growth as a person who holds like so many identities. I think I shared this story in the book where I was even talking to one of my elders, like, you know, I was raised to be Christian. How can I be a Christian and be Native American at the same time? Like, isn't that like a direct, you know, conflict or whatever? And I really have begun to embrace um, this idea of just, you know, I can be all the things at the same time. (laughs) And it, it is not a way to like, escape accountability, but it is a way of just acknowledging that things are complex and often not absolute. I think I'm also a person that, you know, I'm more of an incremental change kind of person while I have a vision for what could be different. And the truth is like we, you know, we live in this economic system that um, needs to be very, very different. I'm not an economist. I don't like have the solution to like, here's what the economy should be. Um, and honestly, I don't know if we can have capitalism without racism. I mean, that's a question, you know, I hear folks begin to a, a more friendly capitalism that, you know, I don't know, but what I do know is the, the way to get there is going to be coming from uh, community leaders and visions and folks who are most impacted by this broken system. Uh, who have a vision for for what change can be and what it looks like. And honestly, to to do their work, they need money. They they need money. They need to be supported. Philanthropy, with all of the problems that I've outlined uh, today, um, has always played a role in supporting radical change in our communities. Um, you know, when you even looking back at the civil rights movement, there were there were philanthropists who were, moving money and uh, not putting out the big statements and flashy PR announcements about it, but we're just moving money because it was the right thing to do. And we're housing civil rights leaders are hiding them in their homes. And so there is a place for, uh, for money in all of this. I think money is again, a tool. Um, and so, uh, you know, it is, it's, it's, we find ourselves kind of in this nexus of like getting money to people who haven't had it to do their radical world changing work. And also um, having a table, as you said, like at Liberty Capital, where we have people who may have some level of resources, even some wealthy folks there who have uh, power to use their money differently and to create businesses or to lead in business in other places in a way uh, that is not extractive. And so we've worked with corporations like Lush, Lush Cosmetics, for example, who is an amazing partner who 
is really trying to show up and be a, a responsible corporate citizen and to internally and externally in their work, not harm people on the planet and to use their voice and their power and um, resources in the service of change. So it is, it is those types of models that we lift up and support on our path to being something hopefully, hopefully totally new in the future. Mm -hmm. So um, it's a lot of things happening uh, kind of at the same time to, to get to the changes we need. Yeah, I mean, and it really requires a capacity for discomfort, which we struggle with. And that means we can hold space then for nuance, right? right. <laughs> and complexity. Right. So, yeah, and, and that's, it's hard when we get in these binaries. And I think sometimes the pendulums just kind of swing back and forth part of, you know, it's just part of the cycle. And I hear you. I want to, I want to read this quote that really stood out to me um, that you, kind of something you wrote Um and I've been thinking about it a lot along these lines where you said, the truth is there's no future that doesn't include the settlers occupying indigenous lands. Today in the 21st century, indigenous lives and settler lives, families and businesses are intertwined. This is simply the pragmatic reality of today's world. What we can focus on with decolonization is stopping the cycles of abuse and healing ourselves of trauma. And in this way, we expand our possibilities for the future. How do you see the cycles of abuse? And trauma persist in the workplace and beyond, and yeah, just kind of based on in just in 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 light of that mindset of this quote that I just shared. I think you said something earlier that made me think of this: that if we're not doing our own work and our own healing, then we are going to you know per um, perpetuate that. And I think of Oprah. I, I'm always full of Oprah quotes. If you know me, um, that was like my my religion growing up watching Oprah every day after school. Um, <laughs> I think it was for many of us of a certain age. <laughs> right. You know, and Oprah used to say hurting people hurt others, right? And so I have um, witnessed leaders that I um, I clearly have seen had, had not done their own healing and uh, would come to work and, and lead and just be really abusive, honestly. Um, and when we are not doing the work of healing in our own lives, we are going to um, unintentionally maybe, but we, we are going to harm others and we're going to become the thing that we hate. Um, I, I was really motivated as I ascended in my leadership to make sure I was doing my healing because when you have some level of trauma in your life and then that's the type of leadership that you've been exposed to, um, that has been lifted up or whatever is very easy to uh, emulate that. And so yep. we have to disrupt this cycle and say, okay, uh, I'm going to show up as my best whole loving self so that I can exude that for others and help others heal. And, you know, I'm not perfect in any kind of way, but I absolutely have testimony and have witnessed in my own organization where people have come to work here who were severely traumatized from other places they had worked. And I saw how the, the, they brought in like distrust. It took a long time for them to settle down and realize they were okay here. And to kind of, you know, make sure they felt supported and that they, uh, and, and just seeing kind of them break through that and to end mm. their leadership in the most beautiful way. And to know that there's they were going to be like targeted because of their success or or whatever that or you could come here and be a star and grow and do all these things, but I witnessed that uh, quite a bit. So 
I think it's the most beautiful thing to become a healer, to see yourself as a healer. There's so much pain everywhere. The constant thing that connects all of us is that we have all been through something and um, we don't know what people are holding and what people are you know, coming to work with. And not that workplaces have to be the be all and end all. I mean, I'm struggling with that too, right? There's a lot of demands on the workplace these days. And I'm like, okay, I need a lot. y'all to go to the faith community and go to help wherever you can go to get some support. I can't be everything for you here, but um, but we can at least not harm people. We can do no harm in our leadership exactly. model, um, a, a different way of being. So that's that's I think that's important for all of us and um, have some friends who can call you out lovingly um, to say, you know, if, if you're the leader of your organization, it's hard for people within your organization to, to maybe say things to you because of power dynamics. But I have surrounded myself with, with friends that um, will call me out and say, hey, we that thing that you did, that was kind of weird, or we didn't see that being your best self, or like, what was up with that? Because it's, it's so easy to just fall into the, that traditional way of leading. Um, totally. And, you know, egos and all the things that, that come about. So um, healing is important. Everybody should be in therapy, I think. I think everybody should have accountability partners. Um, and just also just time where we step back and reflect on ourselves and being self-aware of our, our, our growing areas. Yes, it's a wonderful, wonderful place to wrap up the questions. And I'd love to ask some quick fire questions before we end the conversation. Sure. A little bit lighter and breezier, okay. Edgar, I hope. Um, what are you reading right now? I just started this book called Sand Talk by Tyson Yucaporta. I'm literally like Ooh. on page five, but it's a book about uh, how indigenous thinking can save the world. Adding it to the list. Wow. What song are you playing on repeat? Um, Beyonce, you won't break my soul. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Yes. Best TV show or movie you've seen recently. I'm obsessed with reservation dogs. Uh, the third and final season premieres, uh, August 3rd. I don't only read or watch native things, but this is the first time we've had a, a show in this way. And it's actually just really good. I encourage everyone to watch it. I, there was a big backlash that it's wrapping up after three seasons. There's a lot of grief about that. Um, favorite, I don't know if you, if I'm sensing we're maybe the similar age, but favorite 80s movie or favorite piece of pop culture from your childhood? Um, I was obsessed with the movie Dirty Dancing. I know. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Nobody does Everywhere. put baby in the corner. Right? Come on. <laughs> I know every word, every song, but yeah, every Sunday I used to watch that. Rest in, rest in peace, Patrick Swayze. What is your mantra right now? My mantra that if it is not a hell yes, it's a hell no. Oh my gosh, amen to that. What is an unpopular opinion you hold? I feel like most people agree with my opinions. That I don't have anything that's too far off. Uh, I was trying to think like best singer. I mean, pizza is the best food of all time. I'm sure people would de- debate, fight me over that. But that, I don't think that's unpopular per se. I mean, even just the fact that money can be medicine is a bit edgy. That is edgy. Yeah, absolutely edgy. Um, yeah, I think that people would want to debate that. Um, I, I think capitalism, that question, which is why I kind of skirt around it. I mean, um, and it's sort of incremental changes there. 
especially younger folks that I talk with who are, who want to burn it down. And I, I'm so glad that we have young people who are uh, like on the front in front lines of leading change. And at the same time, I'm, I'm curious beyond their critique, like what solutions they bring, because I'm like, you're tweeting at me from your iPhone. Does that mean you have an iPhone? Or are you participating in capitalism? You know, I don't know. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> And and lastly, who or what inspires you to be a better leader and human? I will always lift up my mother, who people have heard me talk about quite a bit and write about. Uh, my mom is just the most generous, kind, sweet person that I've ever met. And, um, you know, coming from some really hard times, just landed on her feet in such a way. And this the most just like grateful, loving person who instilled all of this in me at a young age. So I'm so thankful for her. Mm. It's really cute. She um, She's becoming a celebrity in her own right in some ways because I talk about her a lot and she's like so shy, wants no type of attention at all. So it's kind of been cute to witness. <laughs> I bet, I bet. Sounds like an incredible, incredible person. Yeah. Where can people connect with you and connect with your work? So, you know, uh, sure, our website, um, decolonizewolf.com, um, you know, like all everyone's website, we're always trying to update it, but it'll lag behind. So social media is probably better for those of you who are on that. Um, I'm on uh, uh, Insta, Twitter, and all the things at Villanueva Edgar. And then um, Decolonizing Wealth is also um, on all the things. Wonderful. I'll make sure to link to all of it. Edgar, I just really thank you for this conversation today. And I really, I appreciate you and all that you are putting out in the world and how you lead. It really is uh, making a difference. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me again. Before you go, I want to make sure you take away some key learnings Edgar shared with us on his mission to decolonize wealth. He points out the acts of colonization are still happening. And the dynamics of colonization are very pervasive, impacting our ways of being, seeing the world, how we behave as leaders, and how we behave within our families. And wildly, <laughs> he offers us a lens to see money as neutral and the means to help us all heal from the traumas of colonization so we can begin to grieve, repair, reconnect, and create more belonging for all. I know it sounds lofty, but when you read his book, when you have conversations with Edgar, it makes so much sense. Edgar also points out we have all internalized or been infected by what he calls the colonizer virus. And he offers us a lot of hope, encouraging us to come to terms with our history, acknowledge it, grieve it, repair, and relate better to each other, our land, and our relationship with money. And this is the ongoing work of an unburdened leader. Thank you all so much for joining this powerful episode of The Unburdened Leader. If this episode was moving to you, I'd be honored if you left a rating, a review, and shared it with someone you think would benefit from it. You can find this episode, show notes, and sign up for the free Unburdened Leader weekly email and find free Unburdened Leader resources along with ways to work with me at www.rebeccaching.com. And a special thank you to all of the amazing individuals at Yellow House Media 
who produced this podcast episode. 